You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 191 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode I'm joined by none other than biologist and author Rupert Sheldrake. He has written more than 85 scientific papers and 13 books and his latest is called Science and Spiritual Practices, which in my opinion is an excellent book and very inspiring. There is a section regarding the practice of going on a pilgrimage and that is something I intend to try myself. I've already began to look for a suitable location locally where I am that I'm going to pilgrimage to. Here's a short edited segment from uh, Sheldrake's book Science and Spiritual Practices, the audio version, regarding this topic of pilgrimage. There is no need for your pilgrimage to be expensive or elaborate or very time-consuming. In fact, it may be better to start with somewhere local, to get to know where you live in a new way. When you open yourself to the idea, try to feel which local holy place calls you, or at least some place that you feel is important for you. It is best to walk at least part of the way, if only for the last mile or two, because that makes the pilgrimage more real, more embodied. Go with an intention something you would like to give thanks for, or ask for, or seek inspiration for. If possible, take a pilgrim's staff with you, made from any suitable wood such as hazel, the definitive visual emblem of the pilgrim throughout the centuries. If possible, learn some songs before you set off, or pick them up from other pilgrims along the way. Sing them when you reach holy wells, ancient trees, and the goal of your journey. When you arrive at the holy place, do not go straight in, but if possible, walk around it. This circumambulation, usually clockwise, helps to make the holy place the center. Then give an offering, maybe of flowers, as in Hindu temples, or a song, or a thanksgiving, or simply a cash donation. Then, in the holy space, you can make your prayer, and in many cathedrals and churches you can light a candle. Finally. Pray for blessings on your life, on your journey home, and on those to whom you are returning. Anyway, let's not delay any longer. Here's Rupert Sheldrake. So thank you for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So uh, I think uh, most listeners might be familiar with who you are, but... Can you say who you are and, and what your interests lie in? I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I live in London. Um, I'm a biologist. Um, I've also had a long-standing interest in spiritual practices. I worked in India for seven years. I was um, an agricultural scientist at an international institute there. Before that, I was at Cambridge University. I've had a research post at Cambridge since then. Um, I also lived in an ashram in India, a Christian ashram in South India, for two years uh, with someone called Father Bede Griffiths, a Benedictine monk. Um, And when I was living there, I wrote my first book, A New Science of Life, 
which is about the hypothesis of morphic resonance or memory in nature. I mentioned morphic resonance uh, previously on, on, on this podcast, but could you give uh, a very short explanation of what it means? Because we want to hear it from the source. Okay, it's the idea there's a, a kind of memory in nature in the most general sense the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. Each kind of self-organizing system, like molecules, crystals, plants, animals, uh, societies of animals, solar systems, galaxies, each kind of self-organizing system has a collective memory and um, tunes in to previous uh, systems of the same kind. And the, how this memory works is through what I call morphic resonance. Morphic means form or shape. Uh, resonance is to do with vibration. Everything in nature is a pattern of vibration. A molecule is a vibratory pattern. So is an atom. Um, so are cells. Um, so are our bodies. So is speech. All these things are vibratory patterns. And um, the idea is that the information in these patterns, the structure and shape and form and organization, um, uh, passes through a kind of resonance across time and space to subsequent similar systems. And that's the basis of this collective memory. It's based on similarity. Can you recall the exact moment when this idea was formed? How, how it happened? Um, yes. I was um, in Cambridge. I was a fellow of Clare College. I was uh, doing research on the development of plants, plant morphogenesis. And um, I was working on the idea of morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields, um, so that the petal of a rose would have a petal field, the leaf of the rose would have a leaf field, the sort of invisible molds for developing organs. Um, and I was trying to think how these could be inherited, because... The whole point of this field theory is that it's not all in the genes. The genes just code for proteins, um, and they don't code for forms or instincts. Um, those are transmitted by fields. I was trying to think how these fields could be inherited. And I suddenly realized if there was a kind of resonance across time based on similarity, um, many mysteries in biology would be understandable. Um, and a whole new way of understanding nature would become possible. And so I was very excited at that discovery, and I spent quite a few years thinking about it, looking at evidence, um, finding out its implications, before I actually published the idea eight years later in my book, A New Science of Life. You mentioned in your most recent book that uh, you started out as an atheist and then slowly you developed this spiritual faith. Uh, and uh, and I guess in your case, it happened over many years. I mean, I mean, I had a similar start in life where I was an atheist, but I had uh, in, I went down to Peru and had an ayahuasca ceremony and, and my conversion, so to speak, was instant. It was from one day mm. to the next. But did mm. you have a moment where you were like, Oh, I can't believe I'm not atheist. Well, in my case, it was more gradual. It started with traveling through India. Um, 
and I spent um, I spent in 1968. I spent a year living in Asia. I was working at the University of Malaya on tropical plants. But on the way there, I spent six weeks traveling through India and then two or three weeks in Sri Lanka. And it was my first encounter with Asian cultures. And I discovered there were all these perfectly sane people who had a worldview which was so non-atheistic. Um, it was very unfamiliar to me, um, but very attractive. So I was intrigued by that. Um, and then... Um, when I got back to England, I had my first psychedelic experience with LSD, and that had a huge impact on me. Um, it didn't instantly turn me from being an atheist because I thought it was just molecules inside the brain, but um, it opened up an understanding of consciousness that went far beyond anything I'd had before. And I then started doing transcendental meditation Um and again, that didn't require a belief in God or in the spirit world, but it did take me way beyond my ordinary understanding of consciousness. So it was a gradual process, and I realized that um, the mechanistic materialist picture in science is much too limited and is extremely dogmatic. And it's not as if scientists have proved there's no God and the whole of nature is just mechanical and unconscious. It's what they assume. Um, and those dogmas of science are the theme of my uh, my book, The Science Delusion, which came out um, in 2012. Um, uh, so I, I think that the, the realization of the dogmatism of science and openness to other dimensions was an important part of it. And then I went back to India in 1974 uh, to take up my job in the Agricultural Institute. Um, and living in India, I then explored more about the Hindu tradition and the Sufi tradition. And to my surprise, found myself returning to the Christian tradition in which I'd been brought up, but against which I'd rebelled and which I'd rejected as a teenager. Um, because it was the one that was most consistent with my own history, culture, family patterns and so forth. Um, and so ever since then, I've, had, I've not been an atheist. I've been a believer in a spiritual reality uh, with a spiritual realm that goes way beyond our own. The main difference between atheists and non-atheists is that um, non-atheists think that there's a consciousness underlying the universe and underlying nature, whereas atheists on the whole believe that nature's unconscious. There are pantheistic atheists, but I would call them pantheists rather than atheists. Um, but essentially, the difference is whether there's a form of consciousness beyond our own or whether there isn't. Yeah, I realized that my atheistic beliefs actually were based on the organized part of religion and the polit political side and the dogmatic side of religion and when I, through psychedelics, saw the consciousness, I began studying the religions again, and I could actually be freed from paying attention to those things and look at the, the actual source of all the religious texts and practices. 
which I feel that in your book you try to... Actually, your book is very good if you are uh, an atheist and you still want to live a religious life. Yes, well, that's why I, in this new book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I'm talking about spiritual practices because these are things anyone can do and what they lead to is direct experiences. Um, and I think that all religions start from experience, not from a belief system. I mean, the Buddha, after all, started from years of meditation and enlightenment sitting under a, a Bodhi tree. He didn't get there through studying in libraries and doing advanced degrees at universities. And the ancient Hindu seers got there through direct experience. Jesus got there through direct experience. Um, the uh, shamanic cultures get there through direct experience. I mean, the, the, um, the doctrines come later and the organization of religions come later, but they're all founded on direct experience and that lies at their core. Science, on the other hand, is um, often very dogmatic. In my experience, much more dogmatic than uh, religions are today. I mean, apart from fundamentalist versions of religion. Um, but funny enough, science itself is supposed to be based on experience. I mean, the empirical method is about experience. The Greek word empirikos means experience. So science and spirituality are both fundamentally based on experience. And that, in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, um, I try to bring back um, what's been separated uh, because I think they're naturally allied rather than naturally antagonistic. When I was younger, I used to think that religion was kind of like a blanket for weak-minded people. But now when I'm on the other side, I, I don't see it as uh, weak because I am still uh, standing before the unknown mystery just as much as when I was an atheist. So it doesn't really provide any comfort in that. I mean, it's more like a, a state of mind, I guess, to accept that everything is alive and it's hard to doubt that it isn't. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the standard atheist propaganda is that religion's a kind of consolation for the feeble-minded, people who are not smart enough to see through all these dogmas and um, believe in the clear light of reason provided by science. And that's the kind of standard point of view. Um, but actually, materialism, the dogma of science, is a deeply depressing worldview. Um, there's no point in adopting a worldview that's needlessly depressing and pessimistic um, because it's based on a false image of reality. Um, I think that a, a religious worldview actually is a much healthier one because it says we're not alone. Human consciousness is part of a much greater consciousness. We're part of a much greater conscious reality. Whereas the materialist worldview says each of us is just isolated in the privacy of our skulls, our minds are nothing but our brains, all the activity of our brains. And we live in a universe that's appeared by chance, that's evolved by chance and is entirely purposeless. Well, those are all dogmatic assumptions. There's no reason we should believe these depressing doctrines. Um, uh, we can take them on faith if we want, but there's no reason to think that they're necessary beliefs for science. Uh, I think science is a, a 
system of inquiry, not a system of belief. So you mentioned in your book uh, that you encountered many different kinds of spiritual practices, and uh, you even uh, were working with uh, Sufis, and you really seemed to enjoy parts of Hinduism. But why did you decide to like f- focus on being a a Christian? And I can't remember the exact uh, terminology of of your. Christianity, you could remind me, but why why did you pick that one? Well, largely because that was the tradition I grew up with and on which my whole culture is based. And um, when I was, I once went to a Hindu ashram and asked a Hindu guru his advice on a spiritual journey, and he said, all religions lead to God. Um, They're like different paths up the mountain. They all reach the summit of the mountain if you follow them. Um, and since you come from a Christian family in a Christian country, for you, the most natural path to follow would be a Christian one. And I thought, well, yes, that makes complete sense in my own theory of morphic resonance and collective memory. Um, by following a Christian path, I'm in much greater harmony with my ancestors and with the great cathedrals and churches and pilgrimage routes of my land, England. Um, whereas any other religion would be a kind of exotic import. Um, so I, I like the idea of working. I'm, I'm not somebody who thinks this is the only true religion, but I think it's the right path for me because it's my own uh, tradition. Um, and uh, it feels very comfortable, and and I feel in harmony with my surroundings and my tradition Um, that way, whereas uh, if I were following some exotic religion, I'd feel less in harmony, more detached. And I also think that in Europe, which has its, its long Christian tradition, any spiritual path has to come to terms with what is there um, and what's been the tradition rather than just ignoring it. Um, we have to integrate the Christian tradition in our spiritual paths, I think, one way or another. One thing I think is pretty funny is that Richard Dawkins, when he describes the ridiculousness of God and how he describes God, I agree with him because he says like it's illogical that some man with a beard in the sky is dictating our lives. And my experience of God is that it's not a bearded man dictating our lives in the sky. So I think also that is what made me realize that I was only an atheist in the sense that the God that the atheist ridicule doesn't exist. Well, I couldn't agree more, Alex. I mean, the um, the God that Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in is a God I don't believe in either. Um, you know, no serious Christian or serious religious person has ever thought of God as a bearded figure in the sky. And the Greeks, in their polytheistic religion, pictured gods in human form, like Zeus and Venus and so on. But the the the, the Christian doctrine of God is not as a man in the sky. It's of God as having three aspects, the Holy Trinity. And the whole point of Christian creeds is that they're the point of the creed, which is said in church services, is not a kind of blind belief in sort of ridiculous propositions, is the statement that God is threefold, 
um, has three aspects. And we find the same in Hindu tradition as well. The ultimate nature of the divine or divine consciousness in Hinduism is called Sat Chit Ananda, has three aspects, being consciousness and bliss. And um, so the, in fact, most uh, serious theologies um, recognize that the ultimate reality in relation to this world has this threefold aspect. Even the yin and yang of Chinese philosophy is threefold. The yin, the yang are intertwined with each other, but they're contained within a circle, uh, which is the unity that includes them both. So um, the kind of naive views that Dawkins has, he's sort of rejecting a God that a few children might believe in if they're particularly ill-informed when they're about eight years old. But that's not really a very good way of thinking about it. It's rather like people rejecting science based on what they heard in primary school, having learned nothing since. Nobody in the scientific community would take a scientist less seriously if he was a homosexual. But so why would they when they when a, a scientist believes in God? I mean, it's also it's a personal uh, way of living your life. But it seems to me that uh, a, a respectable scientist cannot be a believer in God. I think this is a legacy of the 19th century and indeed of the, of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, late 18th century. Um, in countries like France, um, you know, the, the Catholic Church was extremely powerful in France and it supported the old regime, the monarchy. And for people to rebel against that order for the, in the French Revolution, they had to have some alternative belief system, and they made their alternative belief a belief in science and reason instead of their view of God. So it got built in from the time of the French Revolution, the French Revolution during, in 1793, during the Reign of Terror, um, abolished Christianity in France. They closed down all the monasteries, cathedrals, and churches, and turned many of them, like Notre Dame in Paris, into temples of reason. Um, and this created among European intellectuals the idea that science and reason were opposed to religion. Religion was reactionary and um, science and reason were progressive. And this became ever more pronounced throughout the 19th century. The communist and socialist movements in continental Europe were explicitly atheistic. Not so in England, but they were on the continent. And... Um, so it became partly political, partly a way of getting rid of the old order of things. And partly in England by the late 19th century, with people like T.H. Huxley, uh, there was a movement to try and make science a professional uh, body of people, men, um, a kind of new priesthood, um, which would replace the old priesthood of religion. So they saw themselves in competition with religion as a rival priesthood. And part of the, the ideology of that was you know, that no sensible, rational person can be religious. Um, if they are, it just shows they're stupid or feeble-minded or in need of consolation, whereas tough-minded, progressive scientists speak for the future and represent the voice of progress. And practically everyone who goes to your university nowadays is implicitly 
um, subjected to that ideology. It's implicit in the entire educational system. I've always been very interested in uh, Sufism. I think it's a a very interesting spiritual practice, but I've never had any direct experience with it as you have. Could you talk a bit about that? What, how did you come in contact with Sufis in India, and and what what do you think are the uh, spiritual practices they do that are beneficial for anyone? Well, Sufis. Um I first encountered Sufis in Cambridge, actually, a kind of Western Sufi movement, which is interested in Sufi philosophy and in the practice, but not so much in the rest of Islam. Now, in India and in the Middle East, where I've encountered Sufis, um, they are first and foremost Muslims, and Sufism is a kind of extra practice. after going to the mosque on Friday, then they go and do their Sufi practice after that. So it's not instead of, it's as well as an additional practice, taking it further into a much more mystical dimension. So I would say that one of the things they're very keen on is chanting ecstatic music and dancing. Um, And so through chanting and music, this uh, there is Sufi songs called Kuzzles, which are devotional songs, which um, involve a kind of repetition of words and chants, which try to put people in a kind of trance. And so does dervish dancing and other forms of Sufi dancing. So it's kind of ecstatic, mystical activities. They also have a form of meditation where the mantra is one of the names of God, it is very similar to Hindu or Christian mantra-based meditation. Um, they also form communities where they dance and chant together. So I would say that, they, that it's, it's the kind of mystical dimension of Islam. And they, the, being mystical, I mean, in almost any religion, the mystics are not fundamentalists. There's a sense in which mystics Uh, it's hard to be a fundamentalist if you're a mystic, because a mystic has the sense of the um, underlying unity of all things and is much less likely to go around denouncing other people and being uh, fundamentalist and dogmatic. Um, So I would say that within Islam, it's the, the side of Islam which is where the experience of God is closest, uh, where people actually directly experience the divine presence Um, whereas the fundamentalists are people who get it from books. And I would say the same is true of every religion, actually, including Christianity. The mystics are not dogmatic, Um, and the um, dogmatists are not usually mystical. Um, So the side of um, religion that interests me most is, of course, the spiritual side, which is why I've written this book, Science and Spiritual Practices, because I think they're fundamental to every religion. Reading your book, I, because I never read a self-help book, but I realized this is actually, in a way, a self-help book in disguise, where it doesn't, it do, usually self-help books point fingers, do this, do that, but this one is, is very good because it gives you the spiritual practices and then the scientific uh, benefits uh, from different experiments done around the world. Yes, well, I mean, it's not, what I'm trying to do is show that these practices, first of all, what they are, 
the fact that in my book, uh, the seven I discuss, meditation, chanting and singing, um, connecting with nature, relating to plants, rituals, um, uh, pilgrimage. Um, these are all things that anyone can do. Um, and I also, so I show what the practices are, what the history is, what the science tells us about them. Um, but there is, as you say, a self-help element at the end of each chapter. I suggest two simple practices where people can taste something of this experience for themselves. Um, because the whole point really is they're not necessarily things you just want to talk about. They're things, if you're interested, that you actually want to do and see what the effects are. And um, I deliberately found, tried to point to very simple practices that anyone can do without signing up to an expensive course or um, needing apparatus or anything like that. Um, all these practices are ones that one can do free or very, very cheaply. So they're accessible to everyone. You mention in the book that they've done experiments where those who meditate, their brain uh, uh, repairs or grows, in a sense. Uh, so people who meditate, they are more, more as they grow older, they are more aware, maybe they retain more memory. Do you think that maybe if you did an experiment with people who have Alzheimer's, if they meditate uh, regularly, if maybe that disease goes down? Well, it would be awfully hard for people doing Alzheimer's to meditate because the whole point of Alzheimer's is a loss of short-term memory and long-term memory. And they'd probably forget they were meditating. You know, it requires a kind of degree of mental concentration they may not have. So I've never worked with people with Alzheimer's, but um, I suspect that the condition would itself preclude um, meditation. On the other hand, one of the points about spiritual practices is not to be ruminating about the past, to be in the present. And I think some forms of mental disorder actually put people in the present and could potentially um, be a bit like spiritual practices, but they're not usually experienced that way. They're usually experienced as being very distressing for the people who suffer from them and for those who look after them too. I always wanted to know your take on uh, this concept that's very popular these days called simulation theory. Do you, are you aware of it and, and what do you think about it? Yes, I'm not very keen on it because uh, it's based on the computer metaphor that we live in a kind of computer-generated virtual reality scenario. Um, and the kind of the idea of a cosmic commute computer generating the world we live in seems to be much too mechanistic. You know, it's another aspect of the machine metaphor. Um, I mean, the interesting bit of it is the idea that we live inside a world which is more mental than physical. But that's not a new idea. It's just a new way of expressing it in kind of science fiction language. I mean, in Hinduism, for example, one view of the world we live in is that the god Vishnu lays down and goes to sleep and has a dream. And the dream he has is the universe we live in. We're, we're in Vishnu's dream. And sooner or later, Vishnu will wake up and this whole universe will be dissolved, but then he'll sleep again and dream another universe. I mean, that's a traditional 
way, and I find the dream metaphor much more interesting than the cosmic computer and simulation metaphor. Um, a simulation implies a, a programmer, a celestial programmer who creates this simulated thing outside the whole um, machinery of nature and simulation, whereas a dream implies an act of imagination. And I think the mind of God is much more likely to be an imagination than a computer program. It could just be that it's the sign of the times that if they had this debate a thousand years ago, they would talk about dreams. It's just that with the technology now, they just use that terminology. But I always had the impression, I mean, for me personally, I always, as you say, when they speak about virtual reality, I, I, I think of it more as a a, a dream. It's just the, the terminology. <laughs> well, I think that's a better way to think about it because... After all, we all have dreams. People used to have dreams and people still have dreams. And dreams are very different from any virtual reality program, um, much less predictable in many ways. Um, so, you know, virtual reality, you could say, sort of simulates dreams through a computer. But why not talk in terms of the real thing rather than the simulation of it? Um, I mean, for many people today who have no knowledge of traditional thinking on these subjects, the computer metaphors there any way into this way of thinking. But I just think it's, um, it may serve a useful purpose as a way of grasping a different way of seeing the world, but I just think it's an unnecessarily limited one. Why I like your uh, morphic resonance uh, model is that it's fairly simple and I think nature is complex, but it's also the way it works is actually pretty simple if you manage to figure it out. It might be complicated to, very complicated to make a mathematical equation on morphic resonance, but, but just the concept of it. Whereas maybe quantum theory and those things are extremely complicated. And, and I'm thinking like maybe it's too complicated. It seems to me that the universe has more of a flow. It doesn't complicate things too much. Yes, I don't think... That, I mean, you, we can model aspects of the universe in mathematical terms. It's very hard to model anything in biology mathematically except for gene frequencies in population genetics. I mean, no one's got an equation for a giraffe or an oak tree. Um, so I think that nature doesn't work through, I mean, is not primarily working mathematically. I mean, we can make mathematical models as the way the minds of some scientists work. Um, but um, the way the mind of a bee works when it's flying through a garden, looking at flowers, I think it's seeing colors and shapes. It's not doing calculations. Um, I think that the... Uh, the, the way nature works in, in, involves qualities, forms, shapes as primary ingredients, not just as derived from some kind of equations. Are you still working on your uh, uh, research regarding uh, telepathy and, and, and uh, like the phone call experiments where people know when before somebody calls and all those uh, books you've written about that? Are, is that ongoing or, or have you like laid it on the side? Oh, no, no, it's ongoing. I'm actually, I'm developing a new version of a, a telepathy test that works on mobile phones at the moment. I just had an email today from my developer 
saying that the new version should be ready to test next week. Um, so hopefully uh, it'll be up on my website within a few weeks, and I invite anyone to try it out for themselves. One of the reasons I'm doing these tests on mobile telephones is to make this research accessible to anyone who's interested, um, because I deliberately work on telepathic phenomena that are close to everyday experience. And um, I, for, for many people to participate um, gathers a lot more data, but it also makes the accessibility of this kind of research uh, part of popular culture um, rather than something that happens in remote laboratories. Um, so now I'm very keen on this, and I think that um, one of the problems in contemporary science, this extreme dogmatism, um, is particularly affects psychic phenomena like telepathy. Most people have these experiences, and yet they've been educated to believe they don't really exist. And I think it's much better to um, admit that our experiences do really exist, and the science shows that they do, and to have participatory research that enables more people to understand that, I think, is helpful in expanding our views of the mind. I don't think psychic experiences are spiritual. I think there's a distinction between them. Um, if I want to call someone on the telephone and they pick up my intention telepathically, um, this is, as it were, a horizontal connection from person to person. Or if my dog knows when I'm coming home, that's a horizontal connection from person to animal. Whereas spiritual connections are, as it were, vertical. Uh, they're to do with the connection of our minds with higher levels of consciousness, whereas telepathy is normally about uh, similar levels of consciousness. Um, so I make a distinction between the psychic and the spiritual. As you've said before, uh, and most people have had some sort of telepathic uh, experience, and they might uh, say that it was a coincidence or, or they might believe it. But, uh, I mean, you know if you know. Uh, what is the point for you to, if you can manage to prove it or have more evidence of it, what could be the benefits of having this more with more evidence? Well, I think that the the view I'm trying to <clears throat> test and uh, and work on is the idea that minds are like fields. Our minds are not inside our brains, just the activity of the nervous system, which is the conventional materialist assumption on which billions of dollars are being spent at the moment on brain programs and psychological research and so on, all based on the assumption it's nothing but the brain. Um, I think it's rather like trying to say a television set's nothing but the components and the energy within the set, ignoring the fact that it depends on invisible signals coming from outside the set. Um, I just think it's a gross misconception of the nature of minds. And so one of the lines of evidence that shows our minds are more extensive than brains is telepathy. If my intentions can affect a dog hundreds of miles away or a person hundreds of miles away, um, as they do in telephone telepathy, um, this shows our minds are much more extensive than our brains. So I think it's very important to recognize that our minds are extended, not just inside our heads. Um, it's 
part of a field model of nature, seeing nature as organized by fields rather than just by stuff that's localized. And of course, within physics, everyone agrees that fields underlie everything. The whole of modern technology is like radio and television and the internet and mobile phones depend on extended invisible fields. That's why mobile phones work. They have an electromagnetic field within them, but this um, works at a distance through electromagnetic radiation, radio waves, which are invisible and which stretch out far beyond the phone. And I think our minds are like that in the sense that they're normally grounded in the activity of our brain, but they're not confined to the insides of our heads. So this research on telepathy um, is really a way of showing that our minds are extended. Our minds are extended in space, in telepathy connected with other minds. They're also extended in time, which we already know through the phenomenon of memory and sometimes through precognition connections with the future. Um, but they're also extended to direct contacts with other minds, which uh, we know through mystical experiences when we're talking about other forms of consciousness more inclusive than our own. I have a lot of telepathy with my wife. It's very often that uh, she uh, starts talking about a topic for no reason that I have been thinking about for the last few days. Uh, that happens all the time. And then we always laugh when we when I tell that to her, that I've been thinking about that topic. But another thing that happens a lot is that I uh, might think about a person I've never thought about for years, and then just moments, sometimes it's only seconds later, I meet this person. So that's very common. And I decided that I w was going to start writing down every time this happens. Uh, but then when I did that, it stopped. So that's also annoying. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, I, it's, it's because when I'm focusing on it, it doesn't happen. Interesting. Yes. Well, our conscious minds often inhibit these unconscious functions. I mean, the idea of thinking of someone who you then meet is is quite common. I've, I've collected hundreds of stories from people about this, and I discuss it in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At and Other Aspects of the Extended Mind. Um, I think it's basically a precognitive thing. Um, it's not telepathic because that other person is not thinking about you or they're as surprised as, as you are when it happens quite often. It's, the telephone telepathy thing is telepathic because the person who rings you up is thinking about you. That's why they're ringing you. The meeting, the seeming by chance meeting, um, no one's thinking about it, or at least intending in advance. Um, but I think there's a kind of pre-echo of the meeting which makes us think of that person. And that's, I think, a kind of precognition. Um, so, I mean, the, the, in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At, I discuss three main kinds of unexplained phenomena. The feeling of being stared at, um, knowing when someone's looking at you, telepathy and premonitions and precognitions, sensing the future. And I think those are the main kinds of psychic phenomena that occur in everyday life with people and also with animals. So if, if people want to, to get your book, where can they do that? Well, the book's called The Science and Spiritual Practices. It's published in Britain. It's available as paperback, available in 
Kindle as an electronic book. It's also available as an audible book with me reading it. So if people don't like reading but like listening instead, that's another option. And do and you have a website if people want to check out all your other work? Oh, yes, that's important because there's tons of stuff on my website, talks, dialogues, controversies, scientific papers, YouTubes, etc. And the website is www.sheldrake.org, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E, sheldrake.org. Thank you a lot for uh, taking the time to, to be on the podcast. A pleasure, Alex, and good luck with what you're doing, and um, I hope uh, it reaches many people. If you want to indulge in everything Sheldrake does, go to sheldrake.org. This summer, a true story. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Everything is about to change. If you want to support the podcast, become a patron. For a few bucks a month, you'll get access to these episodes before everyone else. And you will also get access to a lot of additional material not available anywhere else. Join us at the Round Table of Divine Mystery over at patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist. Check it out. I'm going to close this episode with the beautiful track Landscape 12 from the album Landscapes from Within by Pedro Elias. You can hear more of his music over at pedroelias.bandcamp.com. Next Sunday, we are going to look into conflict minerals. Freedom is in the mind. <laughs>